Good morning. Today, um, I want to dedicate my words to my teachers. This phase of Buddha's awakening is involved with his search. He has left the great palace of self, of self-centeredness, of the perfect mundane life, stepped out of the palace and was driven, I believe, by a very powerful force. Sometimes in Zen, we call this force way-seeking mind. Way-seeking mind. Yesterday, I was referring to this as something, something. Something is driving me. Something is missing. Something isn't right. Somehow this life that I've been living, which is all about I, me, mine, there's something not right about it. There's something more, something. I'm not sure what it is, but I know that there is something missing, something I've got to search for. And typically, one, because one feels at a loss as to what this is that is driving me. What is it that I'm looking for? What is it that I'm searching for? We typically turn to people we think we know, and we think know what we'd like to know, that they've, they've discovered something. And they can mentor us. They can guide us. And so these are our teachers. Our teachers are many. In my own life, I can't say that my parents were the best teachers, but they certainly taught me stuff that I'm probably not going to forget because it's something I don't want to follow. So I turn to my school teachers, my early, I remember Mrs. Rosenblum. She humiliated me in the fifth grade. I will not forget that experience. She taught me a lot about lying and about what the consequences of lying are, what the consequences of calling wolf too many times are. So there were a whole host of elementary school teachers I found refuge with because I did not want to go home. So I went to school as my refuge and I was become pretty good at it. And all of my other academic teachers were very influential in my life. But then there were all my friends and my relatives and uh, dogs and cats and a parakeet, <laughs> Tweety, 
<laughs> he was a real, uh, real teacher to me, taught me how to sing. And then, of course, as, as I grew older, I had a child who has been probably the most significant teacher that I've had. Uh, she's, she really sees me. She, she knows me really well and will challenge me repeatedly and has taught me a lot. And then our Sangha, our teachers are everywhere, dogs, cats, birds, uh, squirrels, flying squirrels. <laughs> that was a lesson, wasn't it? <laughs> about respect and about fighting with the natural world. So to all of these, including my, my spiritual teachers, my first teacher, Diane Banaj, my second Zen teacher in the Rinzai tradition, General Lee Milton Sensei, and then my guiding teacher, Kozan Shoho, Michael Newhall, um, who wrapped me in a blanket when I first arrived at Chikoji Zen Center many years ago. And knowing who that was, who wrapped me in a blanket when I was sitting in a freezing cold Zendo, that I knew that was gonna be my teacher. But you know, the more I think about that experience, the more I wonder whether I'm making it up. It just seems, from my perspective now, did that really happen? Did, ha did he really come behind me while I was sitting zazen and put a blanket over my shoulders? I sometimes think that's a complete fiction that I've, I've imagined that. But nonetheless, that's how it felt. So that's good enough for me. And so I, I, I sit here in gratitude to all the many beings who have guided me along the way, sometimes to dead ends, sometimes to really dark places. Uh, nonetheless, always, always something to discover something to process, something to learn from. So my words today are dedicated to, to all of them. A prince in the jungle. That's how we left Shakyamuni yesterday stepped out of the palace, having seen what are called the four sights. Someone who was aging, someone who was sick, someone who was dead, and someone who looked like they were a monk or some kind of spiritual being. 
in probably orange or yellow robes. You know, those four, four sites are often, they're almost kind of, you rattle them off, you know. You saw old age, sickness, death, and something else. But I've been trying to enter Buddha's inner being. What was really going on for him or might be going on for me when I step out of my self-centered world and notice realities that I'm not used to because I'm so self-absorbed. So I notice, well, this old age thing, well, I've been noticing that a lot. <laughs> I don't have to look outside of myself to notice old age. And Buddha, at the time, 29 years old, he never saw gray hair, probably. He was surrounded by youth. He was protected against seeing this, this wrinkled, infirmed, pale, hunched over person who uh, we say everything that's put together falls apart. That's pretty much what aging is. And I suspect each of you in some way have a sense of, well, I, I've lost stuff that I used to have. Uh, I, things are sort of falling apart in certain ways in my body, in my life, in my memory, my hearing. Um, I can begin to feel a, a kind of um, deconstruction of my youth. And imagine what it, what it was like for Buddha who had never seen any of this, had no idea that he would, he would age or that anybody else aged. Some of you may have gone to reunions of various sorts, maybe your elementary school reunion, high school reunion, or I know I, I recently, not recently, but a while ago went to my graduate school reunion all of these people who were in their 20s uh, when I was uh, getting my advanced degree. And I now see them in their 50s and 60s. And boy, did they look different. I mean, it was shocking in a way to see someone who is aged um, that you're not used to, like movie stars who you think are eternally young, and then you see what they look like before plastic surgery, of course. But even then, it's pretty, pretty shocking. So this aging is, um, is a kind of a shocking thing. And it can be painful both to experience oneself, the loss of powers, loss of competence in many ways, but also to see it in others, like our parents, who are you know, presumably eternally young and eternally uh, there for us, uh, and suddenly 
we're more the parent than they are. That's kind of shocking. Sickness, none knew nothing about sickness. Can you imagine what Buddha would have experienced if he visited a, 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 a modern hospital, seeing people uh, hooked up to all kinds of machines and uh, lying there, you know, in, in a really, really painful, near death sometimes situation, and unable to move, unable to talk, unable to think, unable to open their eyes. He saw nothing of that. Even for us who are aware of these things, when I walk into a hospital and I see someone really sick, it's incredibly moving and painful. So this is not an easy thing for us and especially for Buddha who had no experience of, of this, no, no less death, you know, a corpse. I don't know how many of you have actually seen a dead person um, prior to uh, what they do in funeral homes of you know, pumping people with chemicals and making them look happy <laughs> to be there in the coffin. Um, but it's, it's difficult to see. So he saw all these things and was probably profoundly distressed at all of it and realized that there was a reality that he had no experience of whatsoever. And, and many of us, live in a little protective bubble. Every now and then we're forced to confront something that is difficult for us to confront. But all of a sudden, seeing such a radical change in what reality was must have completely unnerved him. <clears throat> and also moved him deeply to find out what is this? What is, go what is this reality? What's going on here? Things I've never seen, never experienced before. So I have to find out. I have to, I have to see what, what, this, what this life is all about and how I can, how this suffering that I have never experienced can be relieved because it was so powerful. So of course, as I suggested, being in a state of confusion, not knowing what to do, he embarked upon a journey to try to find out what is this reality that I've never come across before? And how, how is this suffering that I see, how can that be relieved? And I'm, here he is 
he's stepped out of the palace and he is in a jungle. He hasn't found any teachers yet. He's first has to accommodate himself to this jungle. This isn't the forest like this forest where there are nice paths, hiking trails, <laughs> clear cuts. And that jungle was a dangerous place. It was full of wild animals and snakes and demons and spirits of all sorts. It wasn't a, you know, a friendly landscape where he could just kind of wander through and enjoy the, the scenery. It was terrifying. It was a terrifying place. And so, and he was in, he had given away his robes, cut his hair. All he had with him was a bowl, his robes. I think he had a razor. And he had a strainer to strain water. And that's it. He didn't have a coat. He didn't have an umbrella. He didn't have a first aid manual. He didn't have a companion. He was alone in this terrifying landscape. When it was cold, he was cold. He didn't have, he didn't have a raincoat or a, a down vest. When it was hot, he was broiling hot. When it rained, he got wet. He didn't have a tarp. He didn't have a poncho. He didn't have a book. He didn't have a teacher with him. He, had, he was on his own and homeless. Didn't even have a cardboard box or a tent that he could protect himself. Wow, what a change from a prince in a palace to a homeless beggar wanderer. Now again, we can see this as a metaphor also. When we leave all the things that are comfortable for us, all our pleasures, all our fixed ideas, all our routines, all the stuff that we're very familiar with and suddenly are plunged into a state of mind where we don't know what's going on and everything seems new and frightening and we feel lost, lost. Have you ever felt lost? Really lost. Not so much literally, but figuratively. So when you feel lost, try to find some solid ground, some way to find yourself 
to find a place, a safe place, a place that you might even call home. The palace, no longer home. Homeless, now it's important to find a new home, a home that is nurturing, nourishing, peaceful, purposeful. And so he goes in search of guides, of the best guides at the time. Mainly, we read about this in our first reading, uh, two very famous teachers uh, at the time, both of whom taught him meditation techniques, both of whom he studied with for quite a while, and both of whom he actually became as competent and wise and skillful as they were. And they were offering him an opportunity to continue to teach and study with them and to be their disciples. Nope, he hadn't found it yet. So in a way, this is a journey for Buddha of dissatisfaction. It's not often seen that way. It's, it's, a, it's a journey of suffering, continual. Dissatisfied with his, with his palace, dissatisfied with this teacher, this dissatisfied with this teacher, dissatisfied then with what he then moves to, which is these five friends, aesthetics, who are depriving themselves, who are practicing austerities. The opposite of living in a palace, starving yourself, mainly the the, uh, there were many other austerities that he practiced, but the one that we're most familiar with is his fasting. Well, maybe if I fast, if I join this group of five and I, I, I deprive my body of what it needs, maybe I will awaken, maybe I will discover what I'm looking for do away with any form of bodily demand, pleasure of any sort, including the ingesting of food. So <clears throat> his, his process was one of continual leaving, no, this isn't working, this isn't working. And how many of us have in the course of our lives tried different things? I know I have tried. I was brought up as a Christian scientist and I just adored my Aunt Betty, who was a reader very high in the Christian science church. And she was my idol. And anything Aunt Betty said, 
she would always have this beautiful spiritual wisdom that would comfort me when I was times of trouble. But after a while, something happened with Aunt Betty at her, actually at her deathbed, the Christian science scientists believe that matter is unreal uh, and only spirit is real. However, on her deathbed, my Aunt Betty, who all of her life never saw a doctor because she didn't believe that the body was real. Uh, she turned to prayer for relief of illness, even for her children on her deathbed in the hospital. She was asked whether she, whether she wanted all, all possible interventions to save her life. And she said, yes, she did. Well, so much for Aunt Betty. I could not, I was deeply disappointed in her. So Christian science, no. And then of course there were other spirit, actually Christianity. I've done a lot of writing in Christianity and studying Christianity. I thought that was a really powerful religion. If you're going to, if you're going to have a religion, a spiritual life, why not? really have have it be radical radically different from anything mundane like god becoming man <laughs> who thought that up that was something really special different if religion is going to be different let's let's have it full on well that didn't quite I couldn't make myself believe that, first of all, that there was a God or that the God became man. So I just personally, I'm just giving you a little uh, itinerary of my own searching, but I'm inviting you to take a look at your own. Did you join a cult? <laughs> Did you practice uh, uh, transcendental meditation? Uh, where did you go? Did you go to psychedelics? Uh, did you, what, this way-seeking mind, where did it take you? Where did it take you? Some of you are too young to have gone too many places, but I've gone to lots of places. And maybe I'm underestimating how, how broad and deep your search has been. But I think, each of you probably can identify things that you've tried in, you know, go this way and see, see if I can get what I'm looking for. No, that doesn't. Try something else. No. And so this is a, a very, a classic journey. This is, Joseph Campbell calls it, the hero's journey, the heroine's journey, the hero with a thousand faces. We all have something of this kind of journey in our lives. And at some point, like what happened to Dante, um, you get lost. Tried lots of different paths. And suddenly, as Dante says, 
at one point midway on our path in life, when I had journeyed half of our life's way, halfway along the road we have to go, I came to a gloomy wood. In the midway of our moral life, in the midway of this moral life, I came around and found myself now searching through a dark wood, the right way blurred and lost. It's painful to be lost. It's painful not to know where we're going. If there is a place called home, can we find it? Who can help us, if anyone? Sometimes this is called the dark night of the soul. Job had this experience. Many, many spiritual teachers, leaders, and us have this time in our lives. Dark, dark night. And we wonder if we can get through it. If you haven't had it, I hope you do. Not because I'm wanting to see you suffer, but because it is transformative. And just as there is no trust without doubt, there is no light without darkness. Absolutely not. So in my own spiritual journey toward the ladder, in the ladder, ladder stages of it, I came to my first teacher, my first Zen teacher, as a, an accomplished academic, very ambitious, having published this and that, still very, very focused on prestige and being in control. Being a strong woman is really important. So I came with my priest's robes to her and I said, Diane, I have these robes. I have no idea what I'm doing. And her response, which I've often quoted was, finally, finally, you don't know what you're doing. How wonderful. Maybe something 
new, something surprising, something unexpected will befall you. Something much more wonderful than you could have ever anticipated. By the way, she was right. My second teacher, important teacher, my guiding teacher, uh, was my teacher during a period of what I would call the dark night of the soul. Very difficult time in my life. One crisis after another, dog died, divorce, mother died, uh, fire here at one cancer scare, all packed into one few months. And I, I was a mess. And I went to my guiding teacher and Pradokasan, and I said, so I am a mess. And he said, I, I'm so happy to hear that. I've been waiting for this moment for years. And he was right. I had to become a mess to learn some things about what it means to be really suffering so that I might have some compassion for others who all I had in the past was just pity. <laughs> so now maybe, you know, it's like people who, who um, pull their back out and they go around, oh, my back. And you think, come on, shape up until your back goes out. <laughs> and, and things look a lot different. This is something like that. And then my wonderful, dear ceremonial tea teacher, Jiro Reese, the kind of teacher who, uh, it, it didn't, there wasn't two minutes of my practice of serving tea that I wasn't corrected. Pick up the ladle. No, this way. Pour, no. The water's coming out the wrong way. You didn't dig deep enough into the comma. Dig deep into the comma. You dig too deep into the comma. Every few seconds, it was correction, correction, correction. I said, Jerome, you're making me completely disoriented. I, I just don't know what I'm doing anymore. Good, he said. <laughs> So, my friends, when you finally don't know what you're doing, you are a complete mess and totally disoriented, you're ready to get serious. So, 
Sometimes it's called hitting bottom. And at that point, this is where we're going to leave our friend Shakyamuni. Because at that point, there is a turning. And tomorrow we'll talk more about that.